0: Amen. I don't know if you know this or not, but progressive Christians like us don't know what to do with stories about demons. Any reading of the Gospels reveals that Jesus' ministry included three activities. He was a teacher, a healer, and an exorcist. And we're really good with the first two, but we treat the third one like Bruno from the film Encanto. We don't talk about demons. It's like the first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. And the first rule of progressive Christianity is you do not talk about demons. You can visit a progressive Christian's home and they will happily talk with you about sex politics and religion at the dinner table. But don't bring up casting out demons. It's the only subject off-limits and taboo. Talk of demons can ruin a meal. If you don't believe me, try it out today during the church-wide lunch (laughs) and see what happens. When I was in seminary, the scholarly consensus was that the first century world lacked any knowledge of modern science or Western medicine. Therefore, people living in that primitive time only had the language of the spiritual world to describe people they perceived as speaking erratically or behaving strangely. So modern scholars who did not believe people could be possessed by demons came up with two possible explanations for what's going on in these many passages of scripture. Epilepsy or mental illness. First, we need to stop and acknowledge how harmful and offensive it is to people living with epilepsy and mental illness to associate their experiences with demonic possession. And second, if the environmental crisis has taught us anything at all, it's that we should not turn our noses up at ancient knowledge or indigenous wisdom. So instead of explaining it away, we should ask why were there so many people possessed in first century Galilee? During the Algerian War in the 50s, the Paris trained psychiatrist and Martinique philosopher Franz Fanon became the director of a mental hospital where he, during the war, witnessed countless people possessed by spirits. Possession had become rampant in Algeria under French colonialism, which brought violence into the homes and the minds of the Algerian people. Their situation as a colonized people seemed intractable. And Fanon said that demonic possession was one of the ways that Algerians resisted the French colonial regime. Fanon claimed that through possession, the colonized avoided a catastrophe of direct conflict with an occupying force by choosing a lesser evil. He believed that the invasion and occupation of French forces had generated a response that was self-defensively created and debilitatingly mystifying. Demonic possession, then, for Franz Fanon was a deeply spiritual and self-protective activity which demonstrated that whatever there is power of oppression in the world there will always be some form of resistance. In the 70s, the Malaysian government established free trade zones to encourage multinational corporations all over the world to set up manufacturing plants there, and to cut costs by hiring young women as cheap and an easily controllable labor force. So they thought. Within a decade, these corporations were exploiting over 47,000 girls from kampong society. However, managers and healthcare officials quickly became concerned about the frequent outbreaks of possession that were happening on the production lines and shutting down factories. Psychologists and medical experts rushed in and blamed the incidents on the low education and superstitious beliefs and personal failings of the women, diagnosing it as an epidemic hysteria, a mass psychogenic illness. However, one researcher named Iowa Ong found that the women's sudden subjection to harsh conditions of factory work had disrupted their indigenous cultural convictions. And the episodes of possession were an expression of fear and a protest to violations to their morality. So according to Wong, this possession was the Kampong's woman's resistance to the forces of oppression in their lives. When Jesus was born, the people of Galilee had been oppressed by the Romans for generations. Rome terrorized people by devastating their villages and slaughtering inhabitants and enslaving survivors and publicly crucifying their leaders. There were two pillars of Roman subjugation, military conquest and economic exploitation. Conquest devastated the community and then exploitation ripped apart the fabric of the family and the community and the village. The historian Josephus records several accounts of Roman violence in Galilee, Jesus' hometown, that caused considerable trauma for the people. In 52 BCE, the Roman warlord Cassius carried out a mass enslavement of 30,000 people on the Sea of Galilee. A generation later, a Roman legion came in and terrorized the city of Sepphoris, right down the road from Nazareth, crucifying 1,000 people along the road between Sepphoris and Nazareth, people who were suspected of resistance. Losing a family member or two would have had a catastrophic catastrophic effect on people's ability to survive in what were already subsistence level conditions, leading to debt and servitude and hunger and malnutrition. Exacerbating and intensifying an already precarious existence were the demands for tribute and taxes and tithes from multiple layers of occupiers and local religious rulers whose steady escalation rapidly increased the poverty of the people in Galilee. And the ability of neighbors to come to the aid of struggling families was exhausted as they also felt the ever-tightening pinch of supporting themselves until the next harvest while rendering up their own burdensome taxes. Villagers in Galilee were forced to take loans at high interest from aristocratic families who controlled surplus resources, further concentrating wealth in the hands of a small few. Unable to pay their spiraling debts, peasants were forced to yield up their children and family members to debt slavery and lost control of their land to wealthy creditors. The everyday lives of people living in Galilee were a struggle for survival and a serious risk of premature death during times of famine and food shortage. So why were so many people possessed in Galilee? It's the same reason there were so many people possessed in Algeria and Malaysia. Generations of military conquest and economic exploitation had caused widespread hunger and malnutrition. The compounding generational trauma had sparked an outbreak of illness and disease in Galilee and possession also as a form of resistance to invading and occupying forces of imperial oppression. Jesus' ministry of healing and casting out demons was a direct response To the oppression of Rome and a radical attempt to address the social conditions of his people. Evangelical Christians tend to spiritualize Jesus' ministry of healing and exercising by making them all miracles that prove Christ's divinity. And we progressives are not much better, are we, when we spiritualize these stories into simplistic metaphors of kindness and compassion. Both perspectives neglect the material reality of what life was like for the average Galilean and why Jesus' ministry was received as such good news by the people at that time and location in history. We cannot understand what Scripture means for us today if we do not first understand what it meant for people living in the first century. We need to know what it meant for people then if we want to know what it means for us now. Jesus' ministry meant both spiritual deliverance and material liberation from the starvation and the sickness and the possession and oppression that was caused by Roman invasion and occupation. But you know, Jesus didn't begin his ministry by staging a protest on the front steps of Caesar's palace or by gathering a revolutionary army to take on the Roman legions. No, Jesus began his ministry in the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth, and in the cities and the towns like Capernaum and surrounding regions in Galilee. He did not start with a press conference or organizing a mass meeting. He started by walking along a shoreline and calling out a few poor brothers struggling to eke out a living in an exploitive fishing industry to come and follow him, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Jesus began his ministry by responding to the needs of the people closest to him, coming to visit the home of Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever, and lifting her up. The intimacy and the proximity with which Jesus' ministry began is unbelievably stunning, From Peter's mother-in-law to the man with a skin disease and all the sick and possessed in between, we find a common thread throughout all these stories to liberate people from the forces invading their lives, the forces of oppression. Jesus acted decisively to reconnect people with their true selves, to bring folks back to community, to welcome them home. Whether he was teaching or healing or casting out demons, Jesus was working to cultivate belonging. Because it turns out, liberation starts with belonging. We can't live without it, it turns out. Belonging is necessary for our survival. According to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, belonging is essential for human beings to thrive. And there is now research which demonstrates that belonging is as important to our lives as food, water, and shelter. We discovered this during the pandemic, didn't we? Whenever we experience a lack of belonging, we are deprived of one of the basic building blocks of life. But what's counterintuitive about belonging is that we often imagine it's something we receive from outside of ourselves, through other people and communities, partners, families, friends, neighbors, churches, schools, work, society. But in her book, You Belong, Ethiopian-American Sibane Selassie writes, we cannot find belonging with others until we truly belong to ourselves. And that can't happen, she says until we make the decision to work to know ourselves and then to embrace what we discover. That's why we could be surrounded by families, friends, neighbors, community, and still feel like we don't belong because we don't yet belong to ourselves. If you look closely at these stories, every one of Jesus' interactions with people in in the end, Ended with him bringing them back to themselves, giving their lives back to them. In in Western medicine, a fever, for instance, is seen as a symptom, a symptom of something else going on. But in the first century, it was understood as an intrusive agent, which is not far off if the fever is the result of some kind of virus or bacteria that has taken up residence in our bodies, sickness, fever, disease, and possession, all were interpreted in the same way in the first century as a sign that a foreign agent has invaded a person and occupied their body. And they believe that when a foreign outside and occupying force has taken over a person that the host no longer has power or control over their lives and they no longer belong to themselves parallel between what the people of Galilee experienced from the invasion and occupation of Rome and what Galileans were experiencing from sickness and possession that was the result of it is obvious. That's what colonization feels like. For people who are under an occupying force, it feels like every aspect of one's existence has been invaded and occupied by an outside force. So, in the gospel stories, whenever Jesus intervened, he always intervened to remove the invader, to cast out the foreign agent, to expel the occupying force, so a person who was sick or possessed could come back home to themselves, to return to community, to belong to themselves again. That's how liberation happens. It happens when all the foreign agents and occupying forces. Are exercised from our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls so that we can be free to return to God, ourselves, and each other, to truly belong. The question that these stories of healing and exorcism beg us to ask ourselves is who do you belong to? Do you belong to yourself or to something else? In this story, do you belong to yourself or to a fever? Do you belong to yourself or to an illness? Do you belong to yourself or to a disease? Do you belong to yourself or to an unclean spirit? Do you belong to yourself or to a demon? Do you belong to yourself or to a foreign agent? Do you belong to yourself or an invasive species? Do you belong to yourself or to an occupying force? To an empire? Do you belong to yourself or to America? To yourself or to a political party? Better ask that question now. This year, it's going to be interesting. Do you belong to yourself or to an ideology? Do you belong to yourself or to a mythology? A lot of people think they belong to themselves or God, but really belong to someone or something else. Outside forces are constantly trying to invade us, occupy us, take up residence in our lives, seeking to control us, own us, subjugate us, dominate us, and ultimately take our lives away from us so that we no longer belong to ourselves, God, or each other, but to them. So we need to decide who we want to belong to. We can do that by following Jesus so that all our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls head in that direction because Jesus is the one who has the power to free us from all those outside forces. That's what he does in scripture, to return us to our lives, to bring us back to ourselves so that we can belong here again. It's not a once saved, always saved activity that we engage in one time and then we're done for the rest of our lives. We must constantly be working every single day to belong to ourselves because it's only when we belong to ourselves that we can truly belong to anyone or anything else in an authentic way. Brene Brown said, stop walking through the world looking for confirmation that you don't belong. You will always find it because you've made that your mission. Stop scouring people's faces for evidence that you're not enough. You will always find it because you've made that your goal. True belonging and self-worth are not goods We do not negotiate our value with the world. The truth about who we are lives in our hearts, and our call to courage is to protect our wild hearts against constant evaluation, especially our own. She says, no one belongs here more than you. Then she claims, true belonging is not passive. It's not joining a group or fitting in or pretending or selling out because it's safer. It's a practice that requires us to be vulnerable and uncomfortable, to learn how to be present with people without sacrificing who we truly are. True belonging takes tremendous courage to knowingly walk into the hard moments in life. Belonging so fully to yourself that you're willing to stand in your truth is an untamed wilderness. It's a place as dangerous as it is breathtaking, as sought after as it is feared. The wilderness can often feel unholy, she writes, because we can't control it. But it turns out to be the place of true belonging. And it's the bravest and the most sacred place you will ever stand. This year we are drawing the circle wider at Myers Park Baptist Church by practicing the expansive inclusivity and boldness hospitality and ever widening sense of belonging that we see in the life of Jesus. But we cannot do it alone. Our deacons cannot do it for you. Our ministers cannot do it for you. I cannot do it for you. Our leaders are only part of the plan. To be a truly inclusive community of spirituality and social justice, every single person in this church is going to have to take responsibility for their own faith, for their own lives, and for their own sense of belonging. Expansive community is not something that we consume or passively participate in. It's not something that's made for us, but created by us rolling up our sleeves, getting involved, taking responsibility, and doing our part for the sake of the common good. Some people say that there is a volunteer crisis in America and in the church today. And if that's the case, it's because people have come to believe that they belong to something other than themselves. But we don't belong to something other than ourselves or to God. We don't belong to our jobs, or our hobbies. We don't belong to the Republican or Democratic Party, no matter what you hear. We don't belong to Fox News or CNN, MSNBC, or even NPR. We don't belong to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, or even the Charlotte Observer. We don't belong to Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and especially not to X. We don't belong to Walmart, Target, Amazon, Lowe's, or even Lululemon. We don't belong to them. We don't belong to Samsung, Google, Microsoft, or even Apple as I preach from this iPad right here. We don't belong to America, North Carolina, Charlotte, or even the Myers Park neighborhood. We don't belong to the cold we have, the flu, the RSV, the cancer, or the COVID-19. We don't belong to the sickness, the illness, the disease, the bacteria, the virus, or the fungus that takes over our bodies. We don't belong to any foreign agent, invasive species, or occupying force, or Roman occupation. We don't belong to the powers and the principalities and the demons or the unclean spirits. We don't belong to the addictive ideologies of nationalism, classism, or casteism, patriarchy, homophobia, xenophobia, or whiteness. We belong to God to ourselves, and to each other, and that's it. Amen? Amen. Everything else in this world can only provide us with a false sense of belonging. And that's why we follow Jesus, because we know he is the one that has the power to free us from all the outside forces that are trying to steal our lives away from us every single day and we follow him so we can recover who we truly are, and take our lives back and come home to ourselves. We cannot fully experience the life, love, and liberation that comes with expansive community until we discover the joy of belonging to ourselves first and foremost. But when we learn to belong to ourselves, to God, and to each other, then just like Jesus, we too can bring healing, deliverance, and belonging to the world. Amen.